Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode, Marvel edition for September 15th, 2021. If you already listened to our independent edition, you'll know that we didn't get the Marvel books and uh, we started recording our new comic book Wednesday episode. And then in the midst of us recording it, the Marvel preview books came in. So Normally, if they come in that late, we're already recording. I, I probably wouldn't bother, but it's a huge week for Marvel. There's a ton of great books, and uh, I, I, I wanted to talk about them. Uh, I want to let you guys know what these Marvel books are all about. So I figured I'd jump on here and do a quick uh, Marvel episode. And if you guys like me doing the Marvel stuff separately, when we get it, which is you know most of the time, maybe 70% of the time, then let me know. We can definitely split it up. We can do... We already do DC separate. We can do Marvel separate if people just like to hear about the Marvel stuff and not have to listen to uh, stuff about independent uh, thoughts about independent books or whatnot. So just let me know in uh, either on Twitter or uh, reach out through an email, you know, however, however you want to let me know, Instagram, whatever works for you. So uh, got eight books I'm going to talk about here. So let me go ahead and dive right in, starting with Black Widow. This is issue number 11. Uh, Awesome. Adam Hughes cover as usual. Kelly Thompson is the writer. We have Rafael De La Torre on art, Jordi Blair on colors, Corey Petit on letters. Adam Hughes, like I said, does that amazing cover. And uh, I do hope, although I love the Rafael De La Torre art, it has, he's using a finer line here that I'm used to him using, and there's a softness to his art. But I hope that we haven't seen the last of Elena Casagrande on this book. I mean, I don't think we have. I haven't heard anything. So maybe she just needs a break to get caught up. Uh, she was doing it solo at first, and then Raphael came on and, and helped her out on a few uh, issues. But I hope she's getting a, a full break on this issue. So she's already started on, on issue 12 because I've talked in the past about how much she's grown just by leaps and bounds as an artist compared to when I first saw her work on Vigilante Southland. She does the you know double, triple exposures on on Black Widow to show her moving through space and fighting and it, her artist is fantastic. So uh, I, I love her on this book and I hope she, she comes back soon. Uh, now I've been a big proponent of Black Widow right from the start with this Kelly Thompson run. It's my favorite version of Black Widow. I think Kelly Thompson has the most authentic voice for Natasha. It really feels just real. Like the way Tasha would really be if she existed you know, she's she's got a little bit of an edge to her. The trauma is there, especially with the first arc that Kelly Thompson did with her losing her uh, her husband and her genetic son. And so, you know, it, like I said, it's authentic. It feels real. There's emotion there, but she still has an edge. She's still Black Widow. She's still one of the best fighters in the Marvel Universe. All that still comes through. If I have anything to nitpick, and again, this is the smallest nitpick in the world, almost to the point where I feel like I shouldn't mention it, but I'm going to, cause I'm me. Um, now again, fantastic book. It won Eisner for best new series. The only thing that I'm worried about. So this is issue 11. This is the start of the next arc. Now the first arc stood on its own and we saw some remnants or fallout from this, that first arc follow Natasha into the second arc, which was totally fine. Totally to be expected. Second arc was her fighting Apogee and kind of rescuing the uh, the young people that he'd given powers to that didn't realize that when they used that power, eventually they were kind of burning their, their life energy up and, and it was going to kill them. This third arc starts, and we saw Apogee escape at the end of the th- second arc. This third arc starts, and, and for the first issue, it feels very much just like a continuation of the second arc which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I don't want to say that because I've, I complain, I've complained in the past that, you know, everything now is written for the trade and it's all self-contained and it's five issues and we don't have these longer plot threads that run through. So I don't want to sound like if we're getting a longer form story that I'm complaining about that. That's perfectly fine if it's a longer form story. But I guess because in a way this is a spider book, we, we see, we've seen... Um, Ariana, Spider Girl, I guess she's called now. Um, you know, she's she has shown up in the book and she's part of the supporting cast. And it's Black Widow and that's a spider, whatever. 
maybe just Nick Spencer has scarred me, right? Because that kindred story has gone on for 74 issues and it's still not over. You know, uh, Kelly Thompson's gone nowhere near that. But I, I just worry that we could be getting into a, a similar sort of situation. Again, it's, it's apples and oranges because this is barely a second arc, barely six issues of the story. Um, but I wasn't necessarily that invested in the villain apogee in the first place. I thought that was the least interesting part of the second arc. I loved seeing Natasha as a mentor. I loved seeing Natasha interact with the White Widow, Yelena Belova. Obviously, if you've seen the Black Widow movie, you know who that is. And, and I, I think that's maybe a little part of the reason that she shows up here. Maybe it was an editorial dictate. Maybe not. Maybe Kelly Thompson just chose to put her in there on her own. Either way, the Black Widow book definitely has a little bit of a family feel right now, which I, I think I haven't seen the movie, uh, but I, I, I like the family feel. I think it works for the comic, but I, I just, like I said, that the Apogee villain just isn't interesting to me. Um, it's the least interesting aspect of the story. So I kind of hoped that we would be done with that villain and uh, apparently we're not. So I don't know. Um, it's still really, really good. I'm still completely in. It's still one of the best books in the, the Marvel universe. I just wonder if, if we could lean into the spy stuff a little more, see a little international action. So I don't know. I'm not sure. And again, it may, it might just be too early. This is only the first issue of the second arc. Maybe it's going to lead into something else and it's not going to be so much apogee stuff. Um, but yeah, it's just something that, that kind of struck me when I was like, Oh, apogee you know, disappeared at the end of the last issue and you just kind of figure, okay, well, you know, villains do that, especially, you know, in, in the Marvel universe and the DC universe, they just disappear and they go away and they come back, you know, months down the line or years down the line or whatever. And I was, I was fine with that, but that may not be the case. We, we may still see that, um, that Natasha's still trying to bring him or her to, uh, to justice. So I guess we'll have to, to wait and see on that, but there's still plenty to like here. Um, both good and bad in terms of the decisions Natasha is making. Um, again, it does have a little bit of that family feel and we're seeing more of her supporting cast and the people she goes to for help in terms of, you know, assets, fake identities, things like that. Uh, and all that feels very much in keeping with the whole idea of Natasha as a, as a spy. So overall, a really good issue. It's just too soon to tell after only one, one issue where this second arc might be going. Um, but man, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I would buy this series just for the, just for the Adam Hughes covers alone. <laughs> and I think there are plenty of people that do, to be honest with you. So anyway, that's black issue 11, uh, black issue, black widow 11. Um, check it out. It's a good, good time to jump on. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty easy uh, issue to, to pick up and, and kind of hit the ground running nothing that happened as far as apogee goes in the last issue is, is really like at this point anyway, for this arc doesn't feel hundred percent necessary. So I feel like you could jump on this and with the context of, of what's being told in the story, kind of hit the ground running if you're curious. Uh, all right. Up next is another book that I talk about every month when it comes out, another spider theme book. It's spider woman. Uh, this one's from writer, Carlo Pacheca. Pere Perez is the artist. Frank Diarmada does the colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Ended on um, a really great cliffhanger last time. Um, the brother that Jessica Drew didn't know she had until the first arc of this series had taken um, a formula that he created that he hoped would cure his daughter of the Drew radiation sickness or whatever it is that they're born with. Um, and it's corrupted him and it's turned him into um, a villain. And he had given um, a previous version of that formula to his girlfriend and she's become even more twisted than him. And when Jessica confronted those two, she was kind of overwhelmed and it looked like she was going to get taken out. So that's where this issue uh, picks up. Although there's a little bit of a, a time jump and uh, Jessica is, uh, reunited with her niece Rebecca, who's the son of that brother Michael, the one that's that, that needs the cure, that's suffering from debilitating effects because of that uh, genetic 
radiation or whatever you want to call it that the, the Drew family suffers from because of all the experiments of the high evolutionary and from their father and mother and all that kind of stuff. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, I highly, highly, highly recommend picking up the first couple trades of this because just like with Black Widow and Kelly Thompson, I think Carla Pacheco is writing the best version of Jessica Drew I've ever read. Uh, she comes across as a much younger and not quite as sure of herself, not quite as put together. And I think that makes her more relatable because she's uh, she's flawed, you know, like the, the best Marvel characters are. Um, and she makes mistakes and you kind of root for her to, to you know, pull it together. And, and she's relatable in that way. So she's reunited with her, her niece. Her, her niece obviously wants Jess to, to save her father. And so they're kind of thrown in together. And um, there are things that her niece wants to do that Jessica's trying to, to protect her from. And in that way, Jessica sort of sees herself in her niece in the story, like she can relate to her. And you wonder how that's all going to going to play out. Uh, we also get some background on her brother. We haven't gotten a lot of that before. You know, I, I talked in the past uh, on the first arc of the series, how much I love the fact that Carla Pajeko was introducing these, these family members, these siblings and whatnot, and really increasing the, the supporting cast of Jessica Drew, because I felt it, it grounded her. It made her more relatable. She wasn't such a loner. Uh, but then with her brother taking that serum and becoming a de facto supervillain in a way, I was like, well, I guess be careful what you wish for. You know, I was happy for Jessica. Maybe I shouldn't quite be so happy because of the things that her brother has done. Um, and so it's great to see niece and, uh, and aunt here sort of teaming up to try to, to save their family, to save Michael. Um, Cause it gives them more stakes. You know, that's, that's the whole part of the reason you add a supporting cast, you add more people Um for Jessica to play off of and have the, the, those relationships and the interaction and whatnot. So this is a really fast paced issue. I can't really talk too much more about the story without giving away anything. I will say that the last page is a great visual, um, both for Rebecca and Rebecca's dog. And that's all I can really say about that without um, spoiling anything. Uh, and just overall in this issue, the art, by uh, Pere Perez is, is fantastic. It is so good. Um, just really fine lines, dynamic, wonderful use of, of space. Um, there's a fantastic splash page with Jessica and Rebecca. There's some sort of dream type sequences that are done very, very well. A lot of smaller panels um, to really help sell the action that happens when Jessica has a pretty big brawl in the middle of the issue. There's some great sort of collage pieces when Rebecca's um, relaying the history of her father. So we can see a lot of events happen over time. It's all done just really, really well. So um, just like Black Widow, for me, Spider-Woman is a must read. It's one of the top comics that, um, that Marvel's putting out. I mean, it's so interesting. Three female led books, which, you know, that's been a thing at Marvel for a long time. How can we can't have more female led books, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I know it's been a while since then, but not only great female books, but written by female creators, right? Kelly Thompson writes Black Widow and Captain Marvel, both fantastic. Carla Pacheco writes Spider-Woman. And I put all those three, like, again, Black Widow won the Eisner for best new series. I feel like Spider-Woman could have been there. I mean, I, I don't think it was actually eligible because I think it started the year before. And obviously Captain Marvel started a few years before because it's up near 30, I believe. But I put all three of those books in the same category. They are all absolutely fantastic must-reads. Um, just, again, the most important thing to me about these books, the things I love most about them, is the authentic voice that all three of these female characters are getting from the writers. Carla Pacheco and Kelly Thompson, they both understand these characters on such an amazing level. It's clear they're passionate about the stories. They're passionate about these characters. They're passionate about getting the voice to be authentic and relatable. And it's just, it's some of the best Marvel comics I've read in, in a long, long time. So I definitely recommend these books. Uh, all right, what's up next here? Uh, oh, okay, so Eternals Thanos Rises. This is written by 
Kieran Gillen. The art is by Dustin Weaver. Colors are by Matthew Wilson. Letters by Clayton Cowles. Now, this sort of ties in with the Eternals miniseries that Kieran Gillen is writing. Um, but this, this sort of veers off a little bit. Um, and I don't know. I, I can't say for certain that the reason there's an Eternals miniseries right now is because the Eternals movie is coming up for Marvel. Although it's, you know, probably not 100% coincidence. But this book basically is sort of a, almost a pre-origin of Thanos. Um, it tells the story of, of Mentor, who basically is Thanos's father. Um, so how did Alars or Mentor, um, who was an Eternal, like who Eternals aren't supposed to actually be able to procreate? So how did he become the father of Eros and the, and the father of Thanos? How did that all go down? So if you're a huge Thanos fan, this is a must read because again, this is like almost Thanos prehistory. Who, who is Thanos in terms of his, his ancestors? How did he come to be? Why is it that he's so powerful? Why is it that he's a force in the universe? And like what ends up happening is you read this, this story and you, you look at the choices that mentor made and you try to understand why he made them even though he's a, an immortal, it's sort of relatable what he's going through and, and why he makes the decisions that he makes. You can completely understand it. But at the same time, it's sort of like watching a train wreck. Obviously, we have the, the foreknowledge that we know Thanos is going to become this, this monster, right, and kill billions of people. And, and, you know, he's somebody that if you could go back in time, you would you would have him not exist and the universe would be a better place. Um, but that's just not the way that things are going to play out. And you, and you know that. And so as you're reading this with that knowledge, it makes it that much more horrific, the choices that mentor is making. And then the emotional toll that it takes on him and the emotional toll it takes on Suzanne, which is Thanos's mother. So this is just a brutal story in a lot of ways. And, and part of it is because, when you talk about the Eternals, and for, for the vast majority of the Eternals, it's not about emotion. It's sort of hard to even have really strong emotions or, or base decision on emotion for, for most of them because they are immortal. And, you know, in a long enough timeline, why should they really care about anything? Because they are immortal. And even if they get killed, they're, they're reborn. So for the most part, it's, it's logic and you know, it's, it's baked into their genetic code because they were created by the uh, celestials in such a way. And even though they have familiar relationships, they're all the same age. And they're just a very unique type of, of individual that feels, uh, you know, many steps above what we are as humans and, and what the human condition is and, and things like that. And that's what makes Mentor such an interesting character because he's he has so many aspects of him that are uh, that are human you know he's got the the curiosity he's got um this desire to to reproduce and so mentor or a, a lars he's uh, he's so much more relatable and he's almost a great pov character to try to understand um who the who the eternals are right like we can he's easier to relate to than a lot of the other eternals but we get plenty of the other Eternals point of view in this issue as well. And it creates a great juxtaposition. And at the end with what happens with, you know, Thanos being created and, and being the, this terror across the galaxy, killing billions of people, you end up thinking, well, we're, is it an, I told you situ, I told you so situation with the other Eternals? Like, we'll see, we told you that Eternals shouldn't procreate. And, you know, it, it's easy to look back in hindsight, but, um, is that really the way you want to live? And, and again, I mean, it, it's just so hard. Like none of us could actually have the, the true perspective or, um, you know, experience of living as an eternal because none of us are immortal and we, you know, as humans have emotions. So you can't really put yourself in, uh, in that situation. You can't walk a mile in the, the shoes of an eternal, but much easier to relate to mentor. And um, it, it's just the tragedy of the story. Right. And again, the fact that we know what's going to happen with Thanos, we know what the you know, and Mentor is trying all these experiments and whatnot, trying to procreate. We know what the end result is, and it's not a good one. 
but you see his passion and you see his desire um, to do this. And, and he has the, the best of intentions and that's what makes it even more tragic. You know, he's not doing it maybe a little bit of a, out of hubris, but he's not doing that out of arrogance or, um, you know, to, to try to rule the galaxy with his son by his side or something like that. You know, he's, he's doing it out of a scientific curiosity and out of wanting to, to better the Eternals as a, a species. And the fact that it goes so wrong just makes it that much more tragic. So really powerful story. Um, the ending, the last couple of pages were really brutal. Um, and, and, I, and that's the word for it, like brutal. Like I read the last couple of pages and it's like, my God, that's brutal. Wow. So great job by Kieran Gillen. And if you're not familiar with Dustin Weaver, um, I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, Matt. The guy's a legend in comics, detailed art, wonderful sense of storytelling. Um, this is a big story told in uh, like 22 pages. Um, and the way he does that is by cramming a lot into smaller panels. Like th this deserves to be an oversized book because Dustin Weaver puts a lot of detail in his art. But this is such a big story that Kieran Gillen has to oftentimes put quite a few panels on the page, which uh, a lot of times then you don't get as much detail. Um, but Dustin Weaver, he must be working digitally and blowing things up pretty big um, and then shrinking it back down because there's tons of fantastic detail in here. There's some great nature scenes, some great cosmic scenes, just absolutely fantastic art, great color. Um, there are a couple of text pages and again, I think that's because there's so much story to tell that the best way to uh, to fit it all in was probably to go with a couple of text pages. I didn't mind them at all. It's not a huge amount of text. It's not like Jonathan Hickman amounts of, of text. Um, and I, I thought it was fine. It, it was uh, it was a good solid read. And uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not actually reading the Eternals mini uh, or maxi series, 12 issues. I think it is maybe 10, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's 12, but I read the first issue. I thought it was okay. Didn't really grab me. Um, never been a big Eternals guy, but you know, I, I am, I am a Thanos guy and I'd heard, uh, I saw some, some creators posting on social media about how fantastic this issue was. So I, I wanted to check it out and it, it really blew me away. So I do recommend picking it up, especially if you're a Thanos fan. So if you're a Thanos fan, this is a, a must read. Uh, all right. Up next, I'm going to talk about Fantastic Four Life Story. We're up to issue number four. It's the 90s. This is written by Mark Russell. We have art by Sean Azoski with Francesco Mana. Colors are by Nolan Woodard. Letters by Joe Caramagna. If you're not familiar with the life story concept in Marvel, it's basically when you tell the story in real time. So, you know, this started in the 60s, but now that we're up to the 90s, uh, 30 years have gone by, right? We've done 60s, 70s, 80s, now we're in the 90s. So 30 years have gone by for the Fantastic Four. They're aging in real time. We saw at the end of last issue, and this is going to be a spoiler for issue three if you haven't read it. You might want to skip ahead like 30 seconds because uh, I'm going to spoil it. Johnny Storm got killed. He sacrificed himself to stop a nuclear war from starting. Um, and so there are real consequences. And the first issue I talked about not getting it, like not understanding it didn't work for me. The first uh, issue because Sean uh, or Mark Russell rather had changed things around like Ben Grimm and, and, um, and Reed Richards hadn't gone to college together and they weren't friends. And there was just too much that, that changed that I felt was fundamental to the characters. But the second issue, it clicked for me and what the way it clicked the way I, I kind of started thinking about it in my mind, you got to think of it like a what if, like what if there were these changes that then led to the way the Fantastic Four is now. And it, it was pretty smart what Mark Russell did because, you know, they were, they weren't as close in, in terms of personal relationships when they went up in that spaceship in, in the way that Mark Russell built it. But what's happened is it's so, it's so much more relatable in a way because it is being told in real time. And by the time you get here to the nineties, despite all the tragedy, despite all the, the things that they've gone through in their lives, um, they're closer, they, they're closer than ever. They have become a family. They've, they've had their ups and downs, um, you know, Reed and, 
and Sue Storm were divorced. Uh, Sue was actually married to, or I think she was married. She was at least living in Atlantis with, um, with Namor. So they've been through a lot um, and they've come out the other side and they're, they're still together. And uh, the other aspect of this is that when they went up in the rocket and got exposed to cosmic radiation at that moment, Reed had a vision and that vision was he saw Galactus. He knows Galactus exists, and he has spent the last 30 years preparing for Galactus to come to Earth, and he needs to find a way to, to save Earth. That's been his overriding uh, motivation and, and what has consumed him, and that's part of the reason him and Sue uh, split up, and it's caused problems uh, over time. So what's so interesting is from those early beginnings where I felt like Mark Russell sort of missed the point of who the Fantastic Four are. They are a family before anything else. And it didn't feel like that in the first issue. He has built it up to, to that feeling like to the to the utmost extent. Um, and that continues in, in this issue um, number four. And we also see some foreshadowing of, because uh, you know, I mean, Galactus has been sort of the I won't say he's the villain of it. He's not the big bad, but he's the, the threat, right? The looming threat over, um, you know, all the existence of, of planet Earth. And so in this issue, we start to see that that threat is uh, about to become reality. Because like I said, Reed has dedicated his life to this threat that he knows is coming. And at first, he was having a hard time even convincing anybody to believe him. They sort of thought that he was crazy, you know, like one of those geniuses that's you know, maybe holding on a little too tight and has kind of lost the plot. Um, but everybody's come around to, to believing him now. And once you find out that Galactus is really coming, like what does that do to Earth? What does that do to the Fantastic Four? Um, and we have, I think this is a four-issue series, but it might be six. So, I mean, we have at least one more issue to come, but I, I think it's two. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check on it real quick because... Um, I hope it's two. I hope we get the thousand, the two thousands, and then the the two thousand tens. Because I sort, <laughs> despite me, um, you know, not really liking the first issue, this has become such a fantastic read that I I I want two more issues. Uh, but there might only be uh, might only be one more. Yeah, but there's two. It's a it is six issues. So again, Galactus hasn't hasn't shown up yet. Um, but that threat is looming, how they're going to defeat Galactus, because the other part of this is it, it is a little more, I don't want to say realistic, um, maybe a little more grounded is the right word, because again, it's, uh, it's about watching these characters grow and evolve in, in real time. So if you think about them being in their, well, Reed and Sue and Ben Grimm probably in their late 20s when they went up into into space um, in the 60s. So that means in the 70s, they're in their 30s, 80s, 40s. We're looking at this, they're probably around 50. So 60, 70 years old by the time you finish it up in the, in the 2010s, if they survive the, the encounter with Galactus. So I'm sure there's a lot more to come. But I, I love this. It's, it's certainly a different way of looking at the Fantastic Four, but Mark Russell has still managed to keep that core. They're a family first more than anything. He's managed to make that shine through almost in an even better way than, than the normal comic, just because the normal comic has been going on for uh, 80 no, 60 years now? Yeah, duh, 60 years. I'm going to talk about the 60th anniversary <laughs> in the next uh, for the next book. So, yeah, obviously 60 years. Um, but hard to keep telling the same stories over and over, you know, with the same characters. Uh, and you want them to grow and change and evolve, but yet you have to sort of keep them in limbo because it's a IP owned by a giant corporation that wants to keep making money off of it. So you can't have them change so much that they're unrecognizable, but in a story like this, you can, right? And they did start out as a little bit unrecognizable, a little bit of a distorted image of who, who at least who I pictured these characters at as in my mind. But it's interesting because as they've grown and evolved, they've come to be exactly who I think they are in my mind. Um, 
but in a in a different way because they have gone through so much. They really have lived life and suffered so much loss and and tragedy, which is another aspect of these life story um, concept issues that is, that is interesting to me because Chip Zdarsky did the same thing in Spider-Man in terms of so much loss for Peter Parker. And if I have any complaints about that Spider-Man life story, it, it was that it didn't feel quite as sort of positive or optimistic as I, I typically expect Spider-Man comics to be. Uh, it, it felt really depressing at times because um, he, he put Peter through so much. But at the same time, I guess when you're condensing their life stories down, you only have one issue to to cover 10 years. Um you know, it's just human nature to focus on the negatives rather than the positives. Uh, but there are plenty of, of upbeat and cool character moments in, in Fantastic Four life stories. So uh, as much as I didn't like the first issue and wasn't sure how I felt about it, it is a series that since issue two is uh, I've loved. And I do, I do recommend that you pick it up. Uh, all right. Next book is Fantastic Four 35. Like I mentioned, uh, 60th anniversary issue. Uh, Fantastic Four has been around 60 years uh, as of this month. So first issue came out in September of uh, 1961. And this is a big oversized issue. It's like 86 pages or 84 pages, something like that. There's three stories, really two stories, because one is just like a double page spread by writer and artist Jason Liu uh, about basically that the Fantastic Four family, no matter what they do at the end of the day, they're a family that, that comes together and spends time together. And then there's a backup, uh, I'll call it, called Stars by writer Mark Wade with art by Paul Renaud. And that's basically an origin story, but Paul Renaud's art is absolutely gorgeous. It has a very sort of digital polished feel and it's it's beautiful looking art. And what that backup story is, is it's a, it's a retelling of the origin of the Fantastic Four, which, you know, at this point, do we really need another one? Um, especially because we got one, I think, in, in the, the first issue of Fantastic Four of this volume, uh, which, you know, about three years ago now, so not that long ago. But what's really interesting about Wade's uh, iteration of the origin here is that it's told from the perspective of Reed Richards as if... He's like, what is his perspective on the fact that it was his fault that all their lives were changed irrevocably to the point where, you know, it's all they've always examined that idea of thing wanting to be human, feeling like a monster and read to some extent feeling guilty about that and always working to try to cure Ben Grimm. But they've never talked really about read in terms of his hubris or his arrogance for making that choice to go up in the spaceship for the way it affected Johnny, for the way it affected Sue. Uh, and so that's really the perspective of, of this retelling. It's, it's really read in his own words, talking about, you know, the choices he made and whether it was a mistake and the guilt he feels for that. So it's pretty, it's pretty solid. Um, and if you're not familiar with the origin, this is as good as, as any retelling of it. Uh, it's, it's pretty great. And the, and the art again by Paul Renaud is, is absolutely fantastic. Now the main story that's like 60 pages or whatever, it's written by Dan Slott. Pencils are by John Romita Jr. Inks are by JP Merritt with Scott Hanna, Cam Smith, Raphael Fonterez, and Mark Morales. Then we have colors from Marte Garcia and Eric Arsenega. Letters throughout the whole entire book are by Joe Caramagna. There is the main cover by uh, Mark Brooks, one of my favorite artists. It's fantastic as well. Now, the main story is basically a Kang story, which I find, I mean, all of a sudden Marvel's pushing Kang, Kang, Kang. Uh, and I guess that's to do with the cinematic universe as well, uh, I suppose. Uh, we have a Kang miniseries. I'm going to talk about the second issue in a little bit here. Um, and so it's interesting enough if it is a little hard to follow because it's time travel. And, and Kang, ha I would argue that Kang is the hardest character to to understand and follow his sort of iteration and timeline in the Marvel universe because he's Kang and then he's Rama Tut and then he's Scarlet Centurion and then he's Amortis and then he's Kang. And, you know, he flips back and forth through all these different um, iterations. And I think that's why Marvel has the miniseries, the Kang miniseries, Kang the Conqueror miniseries out right now to try to uh, explain who he is in, in more detail. Um, 
But this is really Kang in action. It feels like a classic Kang story going up against the Fantastic Four. Um, but it didn't feel like it was anything that was really new or uh, original. It, it felt like, okay, here's a Fantastic Four story that feels like a Fantastic Four story with a classic Fantastic Four villain because he's showing up in movies and TV shows very soon. And the cool part about it is it's in four chapters and each of the different iterations of Kang, whether it be Ramatut or Scarlet Centurion or whoever, go and, and interact with the Fantastic Four in different eras, different classic eras of the Fantastic Four. So in that way, it's sort of a, a look back or a reminder of, of some of the other eras of the Fantastic Four. So that's interesting enough. Um, obviously, and I'm not going to beat a dead horse here, but if you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, you know how I feel about John Romita Jr. art. This isn't the worst art I've seen by him. Um, I listed off a lot of inkers, and I think most likely they did a lot of the heavy lifting here. And, and this is a little bit cleaner, better Ramita art than I've seen in a long time, but it's still recognizable as Ramita. Uh, I think I only got to maybe the, no, it was the first page actually, third panel. And I was like, oh, that's Ramita. And it's just, I'm not a fan of his art. Uh, it's too blocky. It's too static and it doesn't work for me anymore. But I will say these inkers did a good job um, for the most part. And a lot of the lines are a lot lighter in terms of line weight than we typically have gotten from Ramita in, in recent history, uh, which does give it, it does give the art a lighter feel. It doesn't feel so kind of static and um, it, it feels like it flows uh, a little bit better. I mean, Ramita is still a good storyteller. I think his, the layouts are strong uh, as, as they've ever been, um, you know, there's no panels here, like in a Superman run where I, I just look at it and go, what the heck did he draw or that moon Knight cover he did recently where moon Knight had like three knees. Um, there, there's none of those kind of egregious, uh, errors here. And I, I did enjoy the story. It just for a 60th anniversary, I guess I just expected a little bit more. Um, again, I think slot does a great job of making this feel like a fantastic four, story but it didn't feel like there was anything special necessarily and i feel like for an anniversary issue you know you may have people that pick this up just because they see the giant hey 60 years fantastic four story on the cover and you certainly can pick this up and read it on its own you don't have to have been reading fantastic four previous to this to understand what's going on but putting kang in here he's like i said he's such a confusing villain I don't think people are going to, they're going to read this and go, wait, what? So I think they might've been better off either doing more stories with, uh, you know, different creative teams or choosing a different villain instead of telling a, a Kang story. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they, they think people want a lot of Kang right now and they, they want to read as much Kang as they can to try to get an understanding of who he is. That's completely possible, I suppose. Um, but for me, it, it wasn't the the best. Um, maybe if I was more of a Kang expert, I would feel differently about it. But overall, I thought it was okay. Uh, the main story, I, I actually enjoyed the the Mark Wade origin the best of of any of the three stories that were uh, in here, and I enjoyed the, the uh, life story issue more this um, this issue as well. There is uh, the Reckoning War, which is a storyline that Dan Slott has been hinting at for literally decades. Uh, I think it's been 20 years since he first brought it up. There is a mention of that here in this issue. And I just wonder if that might not have been a better way to celebrate 60 years. Take 30 pages and give us the first chapter of the Reckoning War that people have been waiting for so long for, and then just give a couple of uh, other short stories of, of the Fantastic Four, you know, Day in the Life or, or whatever. That might have been a better way to go. But that's not what they did. They gave us a, a Kang story and, you know, it was okay. It was okay. I mean, plenty of reasons to pick this up from the Mark Brooks cover to that Mark Wade uh, story in the back. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was okay. It wasn't what I expected. Expected a little bit different. You know, so many of these anniversary issues that have come out lately that have been um, – and anthologies and this really isn't isn't that there's three stories but like i said one of them is just like a two-page spread 
so really it's two stories. Um, again, not what I expected, not terrible, but 999 is pretty steep. I guess I just expected uh, a little more. Uh, all right, what's up next? Uh, Iron Man number 12 from writer Christopher Cantwell. Art is by Angel Nzieta. Colors by Frank Diarmada. Letters by Joe Caramagna. We talk about the art first. So Cafu was on this book when it first started with uh, Christopher Cantwell's run. Angel Nzieta has come in. The art hasn't missed a beat. This art is fantastic. It's clearly uh, digital art. It gives it that great, really slick, shiny feel, which I love because so much of this is technology and so much of it is Iron Man's armor and he's sufficiently shiny and, you know, lasers and explosions and whatever. And all that is, is beautiful and, and colored so well by Frank Diarmada. So the art hasn't missed a beat with Cafu uh, leaving the book and, and Angel uh, coming on. As far as the story goes, it's an interesting juxtaposition because Christopher Cantwell started off really breaking Tony Stark down. I mean, th this is still the, sort of the, the one story, the Korvac saga, uh, Christopher Cantwell's version of it that he's been telling right from the beginning as we, um, I guess we're in the third arc now. Yeah, issue, issue 12, I guess, if you break it down into five issues. Um, and it's been, it's been pretty interesting because even though it's been the one story, and I, you know, I was talking about this with Black Widow, there's clear delineations from what happened in the first five with really breaking Tony down. And then the second five with Tony sort of realizing that he's broken. And now with the third arc, Tony broken, but still needing to be a hero um, and how that's all going to play out and him admitting that he needs help. And, you know, that's always been a problem for Tony with his hubris and whatnot. So this has been a fantastic issue. It's really hard for me to talk about any specifics in the, in the plot here because it's all action in this issue. Uh, we saw last issue that Tony had arrived on, um, on Dow two Galactus ship along with Colin and uh, they're both in armor and they're, they're trying to basically stop Korvac from arriving on the ship and stealing the, the cosmic power of Galactus that will allow him to, that will allow Korvac to remake the universe as he, as he sees fit. That's the whole uh, idea here. So again, it, it's hard for me to, to talk about anything that happens in this issue, because again, it's just, it's all action with, with Iron Man and Colin trying to, to fight the defenses, uh, the automated defenses of the, the ship with Korvac arriving and, uh, and what that means. Will Galactus show up? We don't know. Will Tony's teammates show up in time to help him? We don't know. How's it all going to play out? We don't know because Tony is not at his best here. He's putting his best foot forward and he's talking a good game, but we know that he's, he's made some, some missteps. We know he's, he's still injured from the first battle he had with Korvac. And because of that, he's been using morphine, a morphine drip in his suit that, that's built in so he can actually operate. He can't take the suit off right now. He would die. So that's kind of a flashback to when he first got the suit and he needed it to, to keep his heart beating. Um, but he's also, you know, fighting that specter that he's always fought, that thing that always has brought him low, you know, addiction and, and um, battling that dependence on, on substances. So again, Tony is, he's broken right now. And how is Christopher Cantwell going to redeem him? How, how is Tony going to redeem himself? That's what's, uh, what's most interesting about this title. So uh, it definitely feels classic. Uh, I know Christopher Cantwell, one of his favorite runs is sort of in that 170 to, to kind of 250 range, which is sort of my favorite era of, of Iron Man as well. And a lot of the themes that he's exploring are sort of the similar themes that were explored there, but in a modern way. Uh, and so I love what, uh, what Cantwell is doing. Uh, if you're not familiar with Christopher Cantwell, he was one of the showrunners and writers for Halt and Catch Fire, which is a fantastic show that, um, that aired on AMC about computers and the, the rise of technology and whatnot. And it dealt with a lot of these same things like trauma and evolving and constantly trying to stay ahead of the curve and what that does to people that are trying to stay on the cutting edge. And so he's the perfect person to be writing Iron Man, honestly, when you think about it in, in that context. And it's another book that I, I highly recommend. Don't hear enough people talking about how fantastic Iron Man is these days. 
Uh, all right, up next, Kang. I mentioned there is a Kang the Conqueror uh, series coming out right now. We're on the second issue. It's written by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. Uh, and the first issue was solid. Um, and I talked about how I was sort of surprised that we hadn't previously gotten sort of a definitive Kang origin or, or why hadn't Kang ever really had his own book before. And uh, again, I'm not the biggest Kang guy in the world, but reading that first issue, I already felt like I, I learned some, some stuff. It is, I won't say a confusing read, um, but you really do have to, to pay attention uh, because it, it is fast paced. And when you talk about Kang, this is one of the, both in terms of publishing history and an actual character history, it's one of the oldest characters in the, in the Marvel universe. And so there's a lot to cover and it's only a five issue miniseries. So we're already, you know, 40% of the way done in this series. And it's a lot, you know, Kang, you, you could, I mean, just think about all the different iterations of Kang and all the comics he's appeared in over the years. Like, you know, when you, go back and look at things like official handbook of the Marvel universe. And you look at Kang's entry, it's like super small print because he, it, it's so hard to explain because he has been so many different characters based on different timelines. And, you know, maybe some of them are alternate timelines, maybe some not. So if he does a, he becomes B and he becomes C, but then something happens and he becomes D one. But if something different happened, it would be D two and it splits off and they take different and he's gone back and been different iterations of himself and gone back in time and replaced himself with a younger self. And, you know, it just, you start talking about time travel, it can get so, so confusing. So I think that Colin Kelly and Jackson uh, Lansing are trying to sort of simplify this and just give you what you need in terms of, okay, let's make this a, as much of a linear story as we can keeping in mind that it's going to involve time travel because it's Kang, but let's put aside as much of the complicated stuff as we can and get to who Kang is in terms of a character, in terms of motivation, in terms of what drives him. And I think they did a good job of that in the first issue. And that continues into the, into the second, even as things start to get a little more complicated we saw at the end of last issue that Kang traveled to the young version of Kang traveled back to ancient Egypt, where the older version of Kang Rama Tut was there, uh, which is the you know classic time. He first um, met the fantastic four as Rama Tut when they traveled back to Egypt and, and what have you. So um, the art is absolutely fantastic from Carlos Magno. So detailed. Um, we get some awesome splash pages with just intricate backgrounds and just just fantastic. I mean, this guy's art is it just blows me away. Fine line work, great emotion, um, really wonderful compositions, both on the splash pages and on panels. Um, some of the best art I've seen in a long time. I mean, just fantastic art like it would not surprise me if this guy gets like the next big um event that marvel does after their um what is it timeless initiative that's coming wouldn't surprise me to see this guy get some sort of big giant uh, uh event you know his his uh his art almost r reminds me of Ivan reese a little bit uh just in terms of how much detail and how epic it feels so really really fantastic love the way uh, Lansing and Kelly again are are sort of simplifying. I won't say dumbing down because that's not that's not what they're doing at all. But they're sort of simplifying, getting to the essence of who Kang is. Um, and again, with him taking a more important role in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is a a series that I would recommend for people to check out if you want to know more about Kang and seeing how he he ties in throughout the the Marvel Universe over so many years. You know both. Going up against some Fantastic Four, um, relationship with Doctor Doom, and there's somebody else here. A couple, th couple things that show up here: um, a character, and then sort of a concept that will be very familiar to to fans of of the Marvel universe. So, really enjoying this series. Uh, 
and it's it's making me like Kang a lot more. I mean, part of the reason I don't like Kang is because I just I haven't invested the time to really understand his history. It's confusing, and so I'm just like, uh, he gives me a headache. I'm just going to sort of ignore him. So, uh, All right. Anyway, on to the last book I'm going to talk about. Uh, it's Trial of Magneto, number two. This is written by Leah Williams. We have art by Lucas Wernick. Colors are by Edgar Delgado. Letters are by Clayton Cowles. So we know in the issue, um, I think it was in X-Factor, maybe Marauders. Any, anyway, during the Hellfire Gala, Scarlet Witch was killed. Everybody thinks it was Magneto. Magneto claims it wasn't. The first issue of the trial of Magneto, we saw that Magneto was basically um, petitioning for Scarlet Witch to be resurrected, like all the mutants have the ability to, to now be sort of immortal. But Marvel's gone back and forth so many times on Scarlet Witch is a mutant. No, she's not. Yes, she is. No, she's not. Right now, she's not. Uh, or hasn't been in the most recent history. Maybe that's the whole point of this trial of Magneto to, to say that she is a mutant. But when Magneto petitioned the, the quiet council, they said, no, he sort of lost it. They ended up capturing him and they're, they're trying to find out the truth. Did he murder um, Scarlet Witch or not? Uh, I mean, supposedly he loves uh, Scarlet Witch, his daughter, why would he have killed her? There's obviously something else going on, um, but it's part of a, a bigger narrative and it's going to tie in to something big coming up, maybe Inferno, maybe something bigger in the Marvel universe. I'm not sure. Maybe the whole point of it is just to bring Scarlet Witch back under the fold of, of being a mutant, you know, which she hasn't been for the longest time. In fact, it, it's such a complicated history that Scarlet Witch has. She's the one that that caused M day, right. When she said no more mutants. And so we saw in the, the first issue of the trial of Magneto that, that there were so many of the mutants that had mixed feelings. Did that play into them choosing not to revive her? Was it just because she was not a mutant? So they weren't going to expose her to that. Or is it because they hold a grudge because she said no more mutants? Like again, there's so much emotion and, I almost feel, and I think I said this in the first issue, like has, has Marvel treated Scarlet Witch dirty? Like I, I always liked Scarlet Witch. I thought she was a cool character, especially when it was her and Vision and they were a married couple. And, you know, I know that whatever the WandaVision TV show played with that a little bit and um, played with the trauma and whatever, but I think it was done better in, in the comics in a way. And I, I felt really bad when I think it was John Byrne that, got rid of her kids and, you know, that caused trauma and she kind of went evil for a little while or whatnot. But you think about it, it's like, man, I guess you, you have to cause conflict and you have to have drama with your characters so they can be interesting. But in a way, I just feel like, man, Scarlet Witch never gets a fair shake. You know, she, she always is the one that's causing issues. Maybe it's just inherent because she can alter reality with her powers. And so it's so easy for her to really screw things up or, or, you can look at it the other way and say it's so easy for her to 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 change things that writers rely on her to make big events happen. And then, you know, character-wise, she has to be the one that that sort of pays for it. So yeah, now they've killed her. Um, but you know, it's comics. So is anybody really gonna stay dead? So anyway, in this issue, like I said, the X-Men are are trying to figure out what's happening. We have both of the X-Men and X Factor. Uh, investigating from different angles on uh, what happened that night when Scarlet Witch died. Uh, we have the Avengers showing up on Krakoa, the first time outsiders. Well, I guess the second time they say it's their first visit, but they had the Hellfire Gala where there were some people invited. But anyway, they actually allow the Avengers Quinjet to come and land and they're giving the, the Avengers a, a tour of the island while they're still um, investigating and then, as always, when you get the Avengers and the X-Men together, things don't always go the best. There's friction there. And um, just when you think things are going to go sideways, somebody shows up that you don't expect. And we get a crazy last splash page panel that really brought a smile to my face. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> What's going on? That's cool. Can't wait for the next issue. So Again, I'm, I'm not sure where Marvel's going with this. Not sure where Marvel wants Scarlet Witch to be at the end of this. What I will say is there's a lot of characters in this. There's, you know, you've got Avengers, you've got tons of mutants with the X-Men and X-Factor and Professor X and Magneto and just all these different characters 
Leia Williams does a great job of juggling all these characters, all this dialogue, all these voices, all these different plot threads, keeping it moving because it'd be so easy to get bogged down and so easy to get confused. Wait, what's going on? Who's doing what? Who killed Scarlet Witch? Like all that stuff is, is important and she keeps it moving and it doesn't get boring and it doesn't get preachy and it doesn't get, um, overly expositional where we're just getting dialogue dumps on every other page and, and all these word balloons. There's plenty of space for the story to breathe. There's plenty of space for some beautiful, beautiful line work from uh, Lucas Wernick, the colors by Edgar Delgado. They're a little primary, um, maybe a little more so than you would expect for a, a book called the, the trial of Magneto that deals with Scarlet, which is death. You'd expect the color palette to be a little more muted, but it's actually pretty bright. Uh, and I like that because it makes it feel more classic, big over the top comic book story. Um, and it, again, like I love that they called it uh, the trial of Magneto as well, because despite the fact that there are so many characters and Leia Williams is doing a, a fantastic job of, of giving everybody uh, space in the book, it really is about Magneto. You know, it is about what happened to Scarlet Witch and how that's affected Magneto, the trauma it's caused him, and how that relationship is going to play out. Um, because I think with what whatever Scarlet Witch status quo is going to be coming out of this series, it's going to have a lot to do with her relationship with Magneto. And why Magneto did what he did, if he did in fact kill her or how he was involved with, you know, whatever happened that night, it's, he, he's going to be the most important character in relation to Scarlet Witch. Obviously, Scarlet Witch is going to be huge as well, because most likely she's going to come back, I would think, in the series um, and, and with what Marvel wants to do with her. I mean, she's too important in the MCU and whatnot. So, again, another must read uh, and I don't think you need to have read any of the X-Men stuff that's been going on, um, the, the Jonathan Hickman X-Men corner of the Marvel Universe. You can pick up uh, Trial of Magneto 1 and then read this, and, and it's telling you everything you need to know. What the details are, we don't even know. We don't even know what the details were of, of Scarlet Witch being killed, so you don't even really need to go back and read that issue where she died. You're getting everything you need in this issue with fantastic, fantastic art. So again, must read, um, be sure you check it out. And, uh, I'm not going to give a rundown on the other Marvel books in this episode, only because I gave a rundown of all the other books that you might want to be on the lookout for in our, uh, episode that ended up being just the independent. So, um, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, don't forget if you want to know the DC books, we do the DC spotlight on Tuesdays. That one has full spoilers. Rocky from the Comic Boom YouTube channel joins me, and we always go through everything in depth. Uh, if you want to know about the independent books, again, check out the other episode that I released today with uh, seven independent books that I did with Jay. And then, yeah, there's so many great Marvel books like uh, you know, Black Widow, Must Read, Spider-Woman, Must Read, obviously the Fantastic Four 60th Anniversary, the Fantastic Four Life Story. This book is absolutely fantastic. So I really wanted to get a chance to talk about these Marvel books because they're, they're really great. So um, again, thanks for the support, everybody. We really appreciate you listening uh, and, uh, and joining. So that's going to do it for this episode and we will talk to you next time. You can find the comic source podcast on Spotify, Apple podcast, Stitcher, Google play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The readings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.